We're going to continue this morning in the book of John, and if you have your Bible, copy of God's Word, I encourage you, open it up. We've been in John for four weeks now. We are still in chapter one, so put on a helmet. We're going to be here a while. Um, we're going to uh, be walking through John for a good part of the summer. It's worth our time, for sure, to understand Jesus and uh, in this way and as uh, John presents him. So John chapter 1 today, as you're turning there, uh, just talk a little bit about this week. How many of you enjoyed the warm weather this week? Yes? yes? Yeah, you are hoping, or some of you were just hoping it was going to rain today. You were, anybody? No? No, we're done with that. We don't want the rain and the cold weather. A lot of things come with the warm weather. Get to get outside, get to do some things you haven't done in a while, get to enjoy some things. Another thing that comes with warm weather, at least for me, is uh, now you have to do all those things you've been putting off for six months in the winter because it was too cold to do them before. I, uh, one of the things uh, that I do like about New England winters is I have six months of excuses for not doing anything outside. Um, I don't have to work on my house. I don't have to work on my lawn. I don't have to do it. No one, uh, no one has to do that from like, uh, you know, November to April or May, uh, June. I don't know, sometimes. But, uh, but this week, all the excuses were taken away, right? So warm weather, it's beautiful out. Things are starting to grow. And uh, if you're a homeowner, sometimes you look out and you're like, oh, all the projects and work that you need to do. And that was my case this week. Go outside, and I'm like, oh, it's great to be outside. Then turn around and look at the house and go, oh, boy, it's great to be outside. Uh, and uh, I saw some things that needed to be done. One of the things I saw, we have uh, some old windows in our house, and, um, and they were in desperate need of painting. They're the uh, really old ones with uh, storm windows on them and wooden frames. And I looked at them and I put it off last year and I put it off the year before. And I thought, well, I can't put this off another year. So got out, scraped the you know, took all the windows apart, scraped the windows, primed, painted the windows and putting the windows all back together and doing all that stuff. And, and houses um, are like that in that they are a process not necessarily a one-time, point-in-time thing that's done, right? So I painted the windows this week, but it would be foolish of me now to think, house is done. Time to get the lawn chair out, get the cold lemonade, and just sit and enjoy, because nothing will ever have to be done on the house again. Houses aren't like that. It's a process, not a point-in-time. Uh, I'll have to do other things, and I'll have to eventually paint the windows again. And it's like that. In life, there are things that are one-time events, points in time, and then there are things that are ongoing processes. Uh, there are things that happen, and they're ongoing, not just a one-time point in time. Uh, for example, you might meet someone new for the first time that you never met, and that's a one-time thing. But then uh, you might uh, make a friend, and making a friend is a process. In fact, there's a study I heard about this week. Someone just did a study on how long it takes to make a friend. I'm interested to know what you think. Uh, the study of a university researcher out in Kansas studied how long it takes to make a friend. How long do you think it makes a friend? They measured it in hours. How many hours do you think it takes to make a friend? 
10. All right, 10 I got. 900 I heard. 20,000. How long is 20,000? That's a long, wow. I don't know. It's a long time. Yeah, we, with a person for three months the whole time. Seems aggressive. Um, anyways, uh, the re, what the researchers found uh, was that it takes 50 hours to make an acquaintance. Takes 90 hours to make a friend. Takes 200 hours to make a close friend. So what we've learned today, if you don't have any close friends, get with Avon. <laughs> Apparently he's willing to give up 20,000 hours to make some close friends. 200 hours to make a close friend because it's not a one-time event. It's a process. It's a process. A wedding. Uh, marriage is like that, right? Uh, when I meet with a couple for premarital counseling, uh, one of the very early conversations I have with them, almost the first thing that comes out of my mouth uh, is, I hope that you have a wonderful wedding, but I'm really not that concerned about it. And, uh, and they uh, usually are taken a little bit back by that because they're meeting with me to talk about their wedding. Um, but I, in all truth and honesty, will tell them I'm really not concerned. I hope you have, I hope the wedding is all you want it to be. I hope you've all, it's all you dreamed it to be. I hope you have beautiful weather and pigeons or doves fly and roses fall and, and uh, flowers, you know, go where they're supposed to go with ring bearers and all that. I hope it's great, but I'm really not that concerned about it. I'm much more concerned about all the days that happen after the wedding. I'm much more concerned about the marriage. Those of you that are married know that marriage is a starting line, not a finish line. Uh, too many people treat it like a finish line. Like we got to the wedding. We got there. It's done. All right, now what's next? But it's not. Marriage is not a point in time. A wedding is not a point in time. It is a process, an ongoing process. There's something in our lives that many of us, I think, treat as a one-time event but that's really a process. And that is the idea of belief and faith in God. I think many times, many of us will treat it as a one-time, point-in-time, one-time event. But what we see when we look in the scriptures, what we, and honestly, if we're honest with ourselves in our own lives, we learn that it is much more of a process than it is a point in time. And so this morning in John chapter 1, John gives us the account of one of Jesus's disciples uh, coming to him that I want to look at with you for a few minutes this morning. Jesus had 12 disciples, 12 men that uh, followed him, that he called to follow him, followed him during his ministry life on earth. There were other disciples, but 12 that were really close. And in that 12, there were three that were really close um, that he often included uh, in, in other things that not the whole 12 were included. And we are given the account of one of his disciples, actually one of the more obscure ones this morning, one of the ones that we really don't hear much about except for this little passage in John. His name is Nathaniel. And I want to look at Nathaniel's journey of belief, Nathaniel's journey of faith, and moving from skeptic to believer. Many of us have uh, maybe made that journey, or you know people who are on that journey, or maybe you're in the midst of that journey. Um, but Nathaniel, we have someone moving from skeptic to believer, and I want to look at Nathaniel's journey. I'm going to give you a little bit of a model this morning. I'm going to walk through some of the steps. And as we do, 
Uh, I'll let you know, not everybody walks through all these steps in the same order. Sometimes these steps are combined. Sometimes they happen concurrently. Sometimes you skip a step. But here's what happens in the life of Nathaniel, and I think it often provides a template for what happens in many people's lives when they come to God. So here's what I want you to think about this morning. Yes, think through it for yourself. Where am I in this model? How have I walked through it? Where are those steps that I'm in? But I also want you to think through it for people that you know that maybe you've been praying about or talking about or talking to or thinking about talking to about Jesus. When they, uh, you, you know you've been praying for them, hey, I'd love for them to come to a place of belief. I'd love for them to come to a place of faith. Um, and maybe you've thought about that as a point in time more than you have a process. And so I think when we think about it as a process, that it allows us the grace and patience that has been extended to us to also extend that to others. So first step of the process, Nathaniel was on a search. Nathaniel was on a search. John chapter 1, verse 45, we're introduced to Nathaniel. Just prior to this, it said Jesus found Philip. And then in verse 45, Philip, it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip's words to Nathaniel, his friend, are this. We have found the one that Moses wrote about. We have found the one that the prophets spoke about. And here's what we know then about Nathaniel. Nathaniel was looking for someone that Moses wrote about. Nathaniel was looking for someone that the prophets spoke about. Nathaniel was on a search. He was already searching. When we meet people... We are not meeting blank pieces of paper. We're not meeting blank pieces of paper with no history whose spiritual life came into being the moment we started a conversation with them. They already have had a spiritual life in some ways. Thoughts about that. You're not meeting someone who God does not already know. You're not meeting someone who God is not already trying to reach. You're not meeting someone who has not already tried to make some sense out of the world outside of them and out of the world inside of them. You're meeting someone with a history. You're meeting someone who's thought through things. You're meeting someone who either is asking questions or has already come up with some sort of answer that they're comfortable enough with to live with. Someone who's already thought through issues of origin and purpose and meaning and come to some conclusion on it, or is still searching and asking some questions. Nathaniel was on a search. Every person that we meet is also on a search. They may acknowledge it to you, they may not, but we've all had to think about, why are we here? How did we get here? And where are we going? It's a search that people are on. And so sometimes we meet people and we uh, think that, okay, we're going to tell them for the first time, you know, all the, the answers that, uh, that, uh, that they've been looking for. And maybe they are, uh, but it's going to take time because they've already come up with some answers probably on their own. And so we need to talk with them about that. After the search, though, the next step is invitation. Invitation. The search leads to an invitation. Look at verse 46, chapter 1, verse 46. Nathanael said to him, 
Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Nathaniel had heard of Nazareth. He knew about Nazareth. Nazareth was whatever that place is in your mind that you don't go after dark. I don't know where that place is. Whatever that place is in your mind that they're from and you're not from, whatever that place is in your mind that when you hear it, you, you think, oh, that's a tough spot, that's a tough place. I wouldn't, I'm not going to ask you to name the place, but there's always a place. You think about it. You hear that town on the news and you're like, yeah, that's usually what happens in that town on the news. Nathaniel uh, is, hears that Jesus is from Nazareth. It's not, he, Nathaniel's from Cana. He's not from Nazareth. He knows all the prophecies. Nazareth isn't in them. And so he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of, he's skeptical. He's a skeptic. People today have this same attitude maybe towards Jesus and the church. Maybe you've talked to someone and they say, you know, and you've tried to tell them, oh, you know, the purpose you're looking for, the healing you're looking for, the meaning you're looking for, everything you're searching for, all this stuff we're talking about, you know, you, you're looking for meaning, you're looking for purpose, you're, you're looking for answers to your questions, you're looking for all this stuff. Have you tried Jesus? And their response might be, Jesus, are you kidding me? The church? Are, that's what you got for me? Are you kidding me? That's, that, that's what you have? Can anything good come from the church? Can anything good come from Jesus? Churches are places they might think full of controversy, judgmentalism, partisan politics, infighting, out of touch, regressive people. Churches are a sham, preying on people's emotions, exploiting them for their money. Churches have abused their power and sometimes abuse people. They attempt to bully people and society to get their way in the name of their God. The church, that's the answer you have for me? Are you kidding me? Can anything good come from the church? There's a skepticism that comes about. Maybe they think the same thing about Jesus. This is the answer you have for me? A man who lived 2,000 years ago? Why don't you just tell me that Napoleon has the answer? Why don't you just tell me it's Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or someone else from history? Jesus? That's the answer you have? The man who supposedly walked on water and did miracles? Jesus, the one whose followers can't seem to get things together? Didn't he just bring more confusion to things? Jesus, can anything good come from Jesus? We don't like unexpected answers from unexpected places. And when you're talking to someone who's a skeptic, when you're talking to someone who has no history with church or Jesus, and you say to them, I think what you're looking for, you're going to find it in Jesus. I think what you're looking for you might find, if you come to church, their response might be, can anything good come out of that? Can anything good really come from those places? Because they have places they expect answers to come from. The answer is going to come from science and scientists. They'll eventually figure it out. 
Or the answer is going to come from universities and professors. They'll eventually sort things out. Or it's going to come from medicine and doctors. They'll eventually prescribe things out. Or it's going to come from the new gym or the new diet. Or it's going to come when I get in the best shape or weight or pliability or whatever it is. It's going to come from the next person I meet, the next relationship I have. This is where the answer is. But Jesus, the church, can anything good come from those places? Hasn't it been tried and found wanting? What would you do, Christian? What would you do, man of God, woman of God, in that moment? What do you do in that moment when someone says to you, really? Are you kidding me? The church? No, I don't think so. I'm going to keep looking. Thanks anyway. What do you do in that moment? Do you get defensive? You get your back up and you get all angry. You get a knot in your stomach and start wondering, start getting anxious. What do you do in that moment? Do you start praying? Do you start, do you start coming up with all the arguments and all the reasons you believe and all the reasons they should believe and all the smart people that believe and start defending it and start saying, my pastor says or this guy says or that guy says or this guy believes or this person says. What do you do in that moment? Or do you do what Philip did? Philip, when Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Nazareth? What was his response? Come and see. Come and see. He didn't get defensive. He didn't get his back up. He didn't try arguing. He didn't come up with all the arguments. He didn't come up and he didn't try and say, it's my job to prove this to you. He just said, come and see. Come and see. Let God prove it to you. Let God prove it to you. Come and see. As Justin preached to us last week and shared with us last week, if you were here, we're just a signpost. We're just an arrow. We're just a bridge pointing people to Jesus. We don't do the saving. We don't do the convincing. We don't do the where we come and see. Come and see. It's like when your friend goes to that restaurant that you've never been to in that part of town that you said you never would go to. And they say, oh, you got to try this place. And you're like, can anything good happen there? This happened to me a couple weeks ago. Pastor Brian and I went to dinner with uh, lunch with uh, someone who uh, attends our Belmont church and works in Boston in the part of Boston that he told us. The police approached him and said, this is the highest crime area in the city of Boston. You, live, you work on the edge of... Uh, the place that is, has the most crime in the whole city of Boston. And we went down there and he said, hey, I, I want to take you to lunch to this place. And we said, okay, you know, a place that we would never go to, a place that I only hear about because it is that place on the news that starts out, like every time you hear it, broadcasting from, and it's this place. At least it sounds that way to me, and I'm not going to say it. Maybe you live there. I don't know. But anyway, it's a tough place. And he said, come down. And we walked down to this restaurant we're going to. And we're walking down the street. And everyone's looking at us. They know we don't belong there. We know we don't belong there. And, uh, but we're there. And, uh, and we go to this restaurant. And it's fantastic. And we have this fantastic meal and this fantastic lunch. And we enjoy it. But, you know, he didn't have to argue us. Oh, you got to do it. He just, come and see. Come try it. Come try this place. It's like that, right? Someone tells you, hey, you got to try this place. You got to try this restaurant. You're like, oh, I, come and see. Come try it for yourself. Let the restaurant, let the food prove it to you. Come and try it. Come and taste and see that it's good. You don't have to argue it. You don't have to put up a defense. Let God do it 
Let God prove himself to them. Come and see. The problem is that all of us often make a determination from who Jesus is from a distance. Many people want to make decisions about Jesus from a distance. And that's what Nathaniel was doing. Can anything good come from Nazareth? He never met him. He didn't know him. But he made a judgment about him. But the next step, an invitation leads to Nathaniel uh, an encounter. An invitation leads to an encounter. So verses 47 to 51. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. Come and see. Nathanael did. He came. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? I thought about how, to, how do you enunciate that question. I'm not sure the tone he's asking it with, you know. Is it like, how do you know me? Or how do you know me? I, I don't know how it is. But it sounds very blunt. It sounds very blunt. I think Nathaniel is a pretty blunt guy, right? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And then his first sentence to Jesus is, how do you know me? I, I, just, I, I don't know. I, I think of him like with a Brooklyn accent or something. But uh, he's, de- he's questioning the Son of God. How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. There's a whole Jewish history thing going on here that we're not going to get a whole lot into this morning. But Jesus' words to Nathanael are very significant. Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. If you know your Bible history a little bit, the first Israelite was Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And Jacob means deceiver. And so he's telling Nathanael, wow, this is a true man of Israel. This is a true, there's no Jacob in him. There's no deceiver in him. Here's a true Israelite. And then he hearkens back to it again. Jesus says, you're going to see greater things, angels ascending and descending from heaven. That's exactly what Jacob saw when he wrestled with God. And so he's referring Nathanael back and he's saying, here's a true man of integrity. Here's a true man of Israel. And Nathanael obviously thinks of himself that way and says, how do you know me? course that's me. How do you know me? And then he says, I saw you under the fig tree. And we have no idea what that means. I saw you under the fig tree. Uh, Scholars twist themselves into knots trying to figure out what under the fig tree means because it just doesn't tell us. Maybe it was allegorical. Maybe it had some Jewish uh, significance because of fig trees. Um, Maybe it's uh, where Nathaniel had a meaningful encounter with God and so Jesus referring to it meant something to him. I think it's a lot simpler than that. I think Jesus is just telling him, you made a judgment about me from a distance And I am telling you, you made a judgment about me because of where I came from. I'm going to tell you where you came from. I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And Jesus is saying, you were thinking that you saw me and knew who I was. The truth is, I saw you and I know who you are. When he gets close enough to Jesus, he comes to him. He is surprised that Jesus knows him. How do you know me? He thought he knew all about Jesus because he knew where he was from. 
It turned out that Jesus proved to Nathaniel that he knew all about him by telling him where he came from. When you come closer to Jesus, close enough to see, you find that he sees you much better than you see him. What Nathaniel found out is that Jesus knew him and saw him even though he didn't see or know Jesus. And this is true. I think when you invite people to come and see, it's true that you find when you get close enough to God to encounter him, what you find is that God knows you. There's people that you read the Bible and all of a sudden you realize it's not like any other book. God seems to be speaking to me. He knows me. He knows what I'm looking for. Sometimes people after a service will say, that sermon was just for me. You were talking just to me. And they seem surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. Not because anything about me or whoever's here preaching God's word, because it's God's word. It should speak to us because God knows us. God sees us. God is directly involved in our lives. And when you invite people to come and see, what they come and see is that God knows and sees them. And if you've experienced this in your life, it can be one of the most powerful evidences for God and your relationship with God than anything else. I remember, um, for me personally, I remember one, this happened a couple times in my life, but I can remember one in particular as I was preparing for this message when I was um, uh, younger and we were newly married and I was, uh, come to church and responded to an altar call, uh, came forward for prayer and was kneeling uh, at the altar and praying, but really praying nothing about whatever the message was about because I don't remember what the message was about that day. Um, And I didn't respond necessarily to whatever the altar call was because there was something else that was on my mind and heart that I hadn't shared with anyone that no one else knew that I was praying about that was on my mind and my heart. And a uh, dear saint, uh, older woman in the church, came up and put her hand on my shoulder and started praying for me and started praying about the exact thing on my mind and my heart that I hadn't told anybody about and she's no way she could have known about and she started praying about that exact thing for me and in that moment what was significant to me as much as her praying for me was the feeling that God sees me that God sees me that God hadn't forgotten, that it, wasn't, that it hadn't gone without observation, that it hadn't gone without God's attention. And I know that if I ask, there are other stories in this room that are like that, that are like that, that you find out that God affirms that he knows your number, he knows where you're at, he hasn't forgotten you, he hasn't abandoned you. And so you invite people to come and see, and you trust that God will confirm to them that God has been at work in their lives before you got there and that God will continue to do their work in their lives. That you and I are just to say, come and see, be the signpost, be the arrow, point them to Jesus. And that's what Philip did. Gave an invitation and then there was an encounter with Jesus and when he encountered Jesus, he realized that Jesus knew him and saw him. But then the encounter led to an experience. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Cana, we learn later, is where Nathaniel's from. 
Uh, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Experience. So they followed, and then there was, an, so he had an encounter, followed, experience. So I put follow and experience together, because that's what Nathaniel did. He began to follow Jesus. He followed him. He doesn't get the experience at the wedding if he's not following Jesus. Sometimes we think following is synonymous with belief. It's not. Sometimes we think following is... There are people who followed Jesus who ended up not believing. But then there are people who followed who were able to experience and then came to a place of belief. The, the disciples at this point are following Jesus the same way they were following John the Baptist before. John the Baptist was their rabbi. We're going to follow you. Jesus is now a rabbi. We're going to follow you. And as they follow him, the process begins and they start to experience things and their belief in him begins to grow. So if you never take the opportunity to follow, you're going to miss out on the experience. And the experience at this point is Jesus at a wedding making like 60 or 80 gallons of wine for the wedding. And this is his first miracle that he performs at the wedding in Cana. The wedding is a time of celebration and wine was a symbol of joy and celebration. It was the best wine that Jesus made. If we don't go and follow, we miss not only the miracle, but we miss the celebration. We miss out on the joy of being around Jesus. It's not dreary or burdensome thing to follow Jesus, just the opposite. It's a place full of joy and celebration and permission to be joyful in every way. People who follow Jesus learn that they have every reason in the world to be full of joy. You realize Jesus is walking with you. You know, I go through, we go through some difficult times in life. Maybe you go through, for, for me, I go through difficult times in life, but I would tell Wendy that I'm glad that we are going through them together. And it's that way with Jesus, right? I wouldn't want to go through them with anyone else. And it's that way with Jesus. That you get around him, and does it mean there's not going to be any storms? Nope. Does it mean there's not going to be any difficult times? Nope. But you go through them with Jesus, and so there can be joy and celebration there. So why is it that we're so often seems like the opposite? Why is it that some people act like they would have preferred that Jesus changed the water into prune juice? Tastes awful, but it's practical. And it keeps us separate from all those non-Jesus people drinking wine at the wedding too much. Christians seem like they're constantly sometimes trying to turn the wine back into water. Jesus turned the water into wine at a celebration, at a place of joy. 
Not only did he save the dignity of that couple, but he was symbolizing that he has come, the kingdom of God is entering the world, that things are changing, that the kingdom of God is breaking in. Wine was a symbol of joy. It was a symbol of celebration. And Jesus, in this first miracle, is saying that the disciples experience it, and they move from experience to belief, because verse 11 says this. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Experience leads to belief. So they go from search to invitation to encounter to follow to experience and then to belief. And it leads to the experience. You know, we sometimes think, well, it needs to go from search to belief, but it doesn't. There's this whole process involved. And then what happens? It goes back to searching because we go, when we meet Jesus, we go deeper and deeper with him. There's more to learn. There's more to know. There's more to understand. And so here's my question for you. When did Nathaniel believe? Did he believe at the invitation? Some came and saw. He at least took some action. He believed enough to go. Did he believe at the encounter? He called Jesus the Son of God, the King of Israel. He believed he was powerful. He believed that he was the Son of God. Did he believe when he began to follow and experience? Did he believe when it said the disciples believe? The Gospel of John is constantly correcting misunderstandings about Jesus. It's constantly correcting people's misunderstandings and wrong conclusions that they come to. And you find out that even though people understand, they have to grow in their understanding and belief. So we would say, yes, after the miracle, he believed. Well, then what about when Jesus is crucified? And it says all the disciples left him. Did he believe or didn't he believe? Well, yeah, he believed and and they all left him and they all abandoned him. Or is it in the book of Acts when the disciples are preaching and and they have no fear of what's going to happen to them and they're getting beaten and persecuted and yet they continue to preach? Obviously, there's a seriousness of their belief at that moment. Maybe the truth is that belief is a point in time and a process over time that happens. That belief in Jesus is both a point in time and a process over time. That yes, there is a point where we come to where it may be that we say, I am surrendering completely to God. But it's part of a larger process that was started long ago and that is continued, that we will have to continue to surrender. We will have to daily take up our cross. There's a process to it. Pastor Alistair Begg puts the walk with God this way. I I think it's one of the best ways I've heard it in three phrases. He says, as a, I have been, he relates it to sin, and he said, I have been delivered from the penalty of sin. I'm being delivered from the power of sin. I will one day be delivered from the presence of sin. And and that's the walk. It's, It's a point in time and a process. I've been delivered from the penalty of sin. I am being delivered from the power of sin. And one day I will be delivered from the presence of sin. It's a process as well as a point in time. But when we make it simply a point in time, when we think, well, it's the baptism or 
other churches, it's the confirmation, or it's the first communion, or it's, or it's this, it's the wedding day, or it's that. It's, it's, it's throwing your stick in the fire, it's signing the paper, it's going to base camp, it's checking the card, and we think it's just this one point in time, I think we miss the fact of what God wants to continue to do in our lives. And when we think it's just one point in time, I think we don't extend the grace to people that has been extended to us. That we don't understand that people coming to God is often a process and you may be one step in that process. You may be watering. You may be planting a seed. But God is the one who's going to bring about the harvest. Steps in a process. It's not my analogy. That's what the Apostle Paul says. But we miss it sometimes. I remember a few years ago, Tom Harvey, who's one of our global outreach partners, and uh, he was sharing on the stage about his ministry, and he was sharing about uh, being in China and uh, ministering to some boys there, and um, he was ministering to these Chinese young men and trying to walk and do life with them and teach them about Jesus, and uh, he said, I'm not going to remember it perfectly, but as I remember, as he said, he's, he said, he said to them something to the effect of, you know, my hope for you is that one day you guys will become followers of Jesus and, and, and believe, you know, believe in Jesus and trust in him. And they kind of looked at each other and then they looked at Tom kind of funny and they say, you know, Mr. Tom, we already believe in Jesus. We, we are already followers of Jesus. And Tom said, you are? And, and he said, well, when did that happen? And, and they said, well, we don't know. But we, we follow Jesus and we, we trust in this Jesus that you've told us about. And Tom said, well, did you, did you pray the, this prayer? Did you say this prayer? And they said, well, no, we don't think we prayed this. You know, I don't think so. He said, well, could you pray this prayer? Because it, some people in the States, this is really important to them that you would pray this prayer and say this. And he gave me a whole new perspective, right? Because to us, it's like, oh, did they pray the prayer? Did they say, you know? But isn't it oftentimes that coming to Christ is both a point in time but a process over time? God is at work. God is at work. What do I know of holy? I think I know something about it. What do I know about God? I think I know something about it. But I've got a lot more to learn. I think I, well, I know that I have faith in God. But if I look back 10 and 20 years ago, my faith has grown. My belief has grown. My trust has grown. It's a point in time and it's a process over time. I'm going to ask our music ministry, worship team to return and we're going to respond to God's word. Let me tell you one more story as they're coming. Uh, there's a guy on stage in Belmont this morning, and his name's Bill. I think he's on stage. I'm almost sure he is this morning. He is on stage in Belmont because he's part of our worship team music ministry there in Belmont. And uh, Bill's a young man who has been coming to Belmont, coming to Mount Hope for a while. 
And the first time that Bill came to church in Belmont was in the fall, November of 2015. It was the third week of November of 2015. I know that because that is the week we preached a message in our sexuality series, and we preached a message about what the Bible has to say about homosexuality and in that aspect. And Bill was in attendance. That was his first Sunday that day. He came with his parents because his parents said, come and see. And uh, he came in that day and that message and Pastor Brian said he saw this young man out there and didn't really know, he wasn't saying anything, but he could, you know how you can sometimes read somebody's face? And his face was, this is exactly what I thought this was going to be. These people are exactly the way I thought they were going to be and I am never coming back to this. And he didn't come back. Pastor Brian didn't see him for a whole year. The next time he saw Bill was at his parents' house when we did a baptism service at his parents' house in their pool and baptized a number of people from Belmont that uh, day in their pool. And Bill was there again because it's his house and it's his parents' house. And just watched and thought, I guess, that there must be maybe something he was missing. So he started attending Belmont. And as he started attending, he started learning and he started growing and he started understanding started experiencing and he had an encounter with God and at some point along the line Bill came to become a follower of Jesus Christ but here's the thing a couple weeks or a couple months ago I guess we were in a members interview with the elders anytime someone wants to become a member of my hope we interview them with the elders we sit down and hear their story and we got the chance to sit down with Bill because he wants to become a member of Mount Hope and we said, Bill, you know, share your faith story. And it was fairly recent. He came to Christ in Belmont. And we knew that. But I didn't know is this. The point in time that Bill places himself coming to faith in Jesus Christ, he said, I was standing on the platform playing my guitar as a part of the worship team. And as we were singing a song, I realized at that moment and at that point that I fully believed and I was a follower and had my faith in Jesus Christ, put my faith in Jesus Christ. That's not always how I, we don't think it's supposed to happen that way. You're supposed to go through this order. You're supposed to check the card and then you get involved in ministry and then you get to play on this and then you get to do this. It's not how Jesus did it for Bill. Bill came to this place and he came to this moment and he said I was standing on that platform playing that guitar and I realized that I believed and I was a follower of Jesus Christ belief in Jesus is a point in time and a process over time can I just can I ask you guys to turn that down just a little I'm getting I don't just sorry thanks because I want to hear this at the end because I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're here this morning and you have are ready for that point in time. Maybe you're here this morning and God has been at work in the process but today is the point where you want to say, God, I want to turn my life over to you and I want to follow you and I want to surrender to you. And if that's you, I'd encourage you that Yes, it's a process and you're coming to a place of belief, but it may be that this day 
April 29th, 2018, will be the day that you're going to say, God, I surrender, I believe, I'm putting my faith and my trust in you. But I'd also challenge you, if you are in here and you're a Christian, are you continuing in that loop? Or did you put a stop in there someplace? Did you notice that the loop doesn't stop? We've got to keep searching. We've got to keep accepting God's invitations, encountering, following, experience, belief, searching. Have you put a stop in there someplace? Have you stopped searching and learning and wanting to press in and lean into God? Have you stopped looking for more experiences with God? Have you stopped encountering God? Because I don't think God has stopped reaching out to you. God wants to take you deeper and further in. Jesus, thank you for your word. And God, I thank you that you are at work in our lives. And Lord, whether today is the place and the point in time that we put our faith and trust in you, or today is the place that we come to the place where we say we've put a stop in the process and we need to continue to grow with you, Lord, would you speak to us and lead us deeper and further into you, God. And Lord, for those of us who are trying to share with people or have people in our heart that we want to come to a place of belief in you, would you help us to understand that we may play a part in the process? Would you help us to be people who say, come and see and invite to follow and just bring people to you? Lord, lead us as we respond to your word today. Father, may we be people who not only know you, but are every day coming more to know more about you and to learn about you. Lead us today in Jesus' name.